Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on February 24th of 2013 under the headline... A Deadly Maritime Concert of Timidity and Incompetence. Here we go. The night of January 12, 1910 was a long one for a group of women clustered on the storm-swept beach of Coos Bay Spit. They were there watching as their husbands, clinging to the rigging of their foundered ship just a few hundred yards away, fell one by one into the churning sea and drowned. It was the final act in what had to be the bleakest shipwreck drama in state history. Twenty-three of the twenty-four men aboard the 216-foot iron steamer Zarina died that day, and they died not from heavy weather, but from a veritable concert of timidity and incompetence. There were no villains in the tragedy, just a number of people who, when weighed in the balance, were found very wanting. Here's the story. On the last day of her life, the Tsarina was loaded with a heavy cargo of cement and coal below decks, with some 40,000 board feet of lumber lashed to the decks, and scheduled for a coastwise run to San Francisco to deliver it. The ship may have been overloaded, such steamers often were. A fierce gale was blowing out of the southwest, making conditions on the bar decidedly hostile. Prudent skippers were waiting for conditions to settle down before putting out to sea, but for reasons that will never be known, Captain Dugan decided to take the little steamer out to sea anyway. That was the first of many boneheaded moves on the part of virtually all the players involved in the Tsarina's demise. The seas were breaking all the way across the bar of the Coos River as Dugan and his crew chugged out to sea. Almost immediately, the little ship was enveloped by a massive comber that swept the deck, severely damaging the pilot house. Now, too late, one has to imagine Dugan realizing what a bad mistake he'd made. But under the circumstances, there was only one thing to do, and that was go forward. Trying to turn a heavily loaded freighter around and retreat back into the bay would have presented the oncoming breakers with a broadside to hit, possibly capsizing the Tsarina. So forward she chugged, as breaker after breaker pounded onto her decks, tearing loose pieces of the deck load and sweeping away the lifeboats. But then, a particularly baleful breaker pounded down onto the ship and put out the boiler fire, and she was truly helpless. Drifting in the breakers, she was pounded by a total of 61 deck-sweeping breakers. Worried onlookers were actually counting them, before finally fetching up against the rocks of the South Spit. At this point, belatedly, she blew a distress call, and members of the crew started climbing into the rigging to get away from the relentless seas. From an observation tower near the harbor mouth, Captain W.A. McGee of the harbor tug Astoria was watching the whole thing, astonished that Dugan would even attempt the bar on such an awful day. When the distress call was sounded, he hustled to his ship, brought the steam up, and went out to help. But by this time, the river current had carried the wallowing ship past the breakers and out to sea, and the bar was really rough, and he very much did not want to have to try to cross it. Quote, After seeing the position of the Tsarina, I knew that nothing could be done from the outside, he later explained. A steam schooner was about three-fourths of a mile from the wreck, standing by. 
By this, he seems to have meant that he hoped the steam schooner would be able to help so that he would not have to. Unfortunately, that schooner was heavily loaded, including a giant deck load of lumber, and although it tried to get close enough to help, it simply wasn't able to. Another steamer tried to help out too, but the Zarina was too close to shore and the seas were too big for deep draft fully loaded vessels to get near enough to help. The only survivor from the Zarina later opined that the Astoria was the Zarina's only real help of rescue. When Captain McGee opted to stay safely in the bay and hope someone else would do the job, he more or less doomed the Zarina to fetch up on the beach. But the Zarina didn't fetch up on the beach. If she had, it's highly unlikely that any of her crew would die. To make a wreck of the Zarina into a true humanitarian disaster, a couple more bad decisions were going to have to be made first. The first of these was another bonehead move by Captain Dugan. After the steamer was out of the bar and floating in the calmer seas, the skipper ordered her anchor dropped. The relentless and powerful wind coming out of the southwest was pushing the Zarina relentlessly toward the shore of the North Spit. Dugan hoped that by dropping the anchor outside the breakers he could prevent the ship from being blown onto the beach so that someone would come and rescue them and the ship could be salvaged. In the golden light of hindsight, it is easy to see that this was the absolute worst possible thing he could have done. Because as the merciless wind pushed the Zarina closer and closer to shore, it became obvious that Dugan had miscalculated. He'd anchored his ship not off the breakers but in them. In the big outer breakers, too far from the beach to reach with a rescue line, and too far out for much hope of swimming to shore. And with no steam to run the winches, bringing the anchor in was not possible. Dugan sent a crewman with a hacksaw to try to cut the anchor chain. But this was a 20-minute job, even on a calm day, and the gale-force winds and the growing breakers didn't give the crewman a chance. He was soon driven up into the rigging with the rest of the crew to await their fate. Stuck in the deadliest part of the surf line, the Zarina soon filled with water and settled to the bottom with just her mast sticking up, covered with terrified sailors. The deck load had been torn loose, and the surf between the Serena and the shore was clotted with big wooden timbers, making rescue efforts much more complicated and dangerous. It was now life station keeper Clarence Boyce's time to shine, or rather, to fail to do so. First, he stayed in the observation tower watching the ship wash shoreward for 20 minutes before taking action, so by the time his crew got to the scene, the Zarina was already settling to the seafloor and the surf was already thick with dangerous lumber. He then set up a Lyle gun, hoping to get a line across the ship so that a crew member could get it and secure it. He tried two shots, but for reasons that were never explained, neither shot was made using a maximum charge of powder, and neither one would carry 900 yards against the fierce wind. By that time, it was probably too late anyway, as the wreck was just a pair of masts protruding from the breakers, and the sailors wouldn't have been able to secure a line, or at any rate, so he must have told himself, because having failed with both of those initial shots, he never tried again. A couple attempts to launch a surf boat to go to the wreck didn't work so well either. Perhaps that was because Boyce had discontinued the surf-launching drills for his men. It's possible that even a well-trained crew wouldn't have been able to launch that day, but we'll never know because there were no well-trained crews on the scene. So Boyce gave up and watched, hoping some of the exhausted and bone-chilled crew members would make it to the beach and building a warming fire to greet them if they did and tantalize them if they didn't. We can only imagine how the women on the beach that night reacted to this passiveness. And indeed, the rest of the community was very critical. They requested and got a life-saving service investigation afterward. The investigators concluded that they were right, that Boyce had not risen to the occasion, although they were very sympathetic with the degree of difficulty of the situation he'd found himself in. Boyce appeared to agree. He submitted his resignation as keeper immediately after the disaster. None of that was of much help to the men on the Zarina's masts, though. 
Throughout the night, they dropped, one by one and two by two, into the sea to drown. But late the following morning, they were all gone, and of the numerous bodies that washed up on the beach, only one survived. Key sources in this story included the annual report of the U.S. Life Saving Service for 1910, the Ocean City Life Saving Station Museum at ocmuseum.org, and Don Marshall. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶